So this is the last of our weeks uh, ahead of Chutz Aretz. We have Matos. They have Pinchas. Uh, but next week uh, we'll meet up at the pass uh, where we will have Masse and they will have Matos Masse together. <laughs> and the Parsha of Matos begins with the section of Hatoras Nadarim, pardon me, of Nadarim, that is to say the laws of uh, vows and oaths, etc. And I'd like to pay some attention at the beginning of our discussion this evening to the way that the Parsha is introduced. So it begins in Pasuk Bays of the chapter, as we've noted in the past, the chapters don't always, are not always synchronized <coughs> or in accord with uh, the actual beginning of the Parsha. But the way the Pasuk reads is, Moshe speaks to the heads of the tribes of B'nai Yisrael, saying, <coughs> This is the matter, this is the word that Hashem has commanded, and what ensues are the details of Nedarim and Shavuos, how they can be made, how they can be unmade, and... Uh, that's for the next uh, 16 or so psukim. But our focus for now is on the words, the two words, zehadavar. This is the matter, or this is the word. <coughs> and Rashi comments, and Rashi's comments here are taken from the Sifrei, from the Medrash Halacha, to this pasuk. Zehadavar. Says Rashi, Moshe nitnabei b'koa mar Hashem kachatzos halayla. You'll note from elsewhere in the Torah that Moshe, on occasion, will introduce his nevuah, his prophecy, with the words Koamar Hashem, which for us are very familiar words to introduce a nevuah, Koamar Hashem. Moshe will do that. He quotes the Pasuk, Koamar Hashem, Kachatzos Halayla. That's Moshe talking to Paro, predicting or warning him in Hashem's name, about Makas Bechoros. Other Nevi'im also will use Karmar Hashem. That Rashi does not even provide examples of that. It's all over the place. Karmar Hashem, Matzachem Bamidbar, Karmar Hashem, etc. and so forth. <coughs> but then, Mose Falea Moshe, but Moshe then has an additional level to the other Nevi'im, Shenisnabe Belashon, Ze Hadavar, that Moshe will also prophesy, introduce his prophecy with the words Ze Hadavar. So, in summary, what emerges is that while Moshe can prophesy with Koamar Hashem, like the other Nevi'im, he's also capable of using a unique introductory phrase, Ze Hadavar. No other Novi will use that. So, firstly, <coughs> What behooves us is to try and understand what is the difference between Kalamar Hashem and Zahadavar. It kind of sounds like two ways of saying the same thing, uh, essentially. Kalamar Hashem, so says Hashem. Zahadavar, this is the word. So says Hashem, is this, is this is the word of Hashem. How are the two different and how do they reflect the uniqueness of Moshe? Only he can say Zahadavar. So we alluded to this in passing a couple of weeks ago, but it's worthwhile turning our, our center focus to this question, because we will see that there is quite a major uh, dispute, really, a discussion 
among the Mefarshim to understand the difference between these two terms, Ko'amar Hashem and Zehadavar. <clears throat> the Mizrahi, Rabbeinu Eliyahu Mizrahi, the foremost commentator on Rashi, in his comments on Rashi here, explains that with Nevi'im generally, uh, I would not want to use the term with regular Nevi'im. If he's a Navi, he's not regular. But with Nevi'im generally, the way that the Nevi'im works is that they receive the content of the message. But the actual formulation of the message is for the Navi to formulate himself. We discussed this from the Rebbe Shule Diskin takes this approach with regards to uh, Bilam. We spoke about this at quite some length. And it's for this reason, <coughs> and of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu chooses Nevi'im, Asher Bachar B'Nevi'im Tovim, who will faithfully formulate the message. But the formulation is theirs. And that is why other Nevi'im, or Nevi'im generally, can never say more than Ko'amar Hashem. Because Ko'amar Hashem, so says Hashem, this is the message. But they cannot say these are the words, because the words are theirs. The message is Hashem, the formulation is theirs. And that is why <coughs> other Nevi'im will say Ko'amar Hashem. The exception to the rule is Moshe. Moshe is able to receive or to intuit exactly the words, either he receives the words directly from Hashem or is able to intuit exactly the words that Hashem himself, so to speak, would use. And that is why Moshe alone is able to introduce the Nevuah with the words Zehadavar. This is the word. This is it. With these words, Hashem spoke. Because Moshe it's, uh, is, down, is down to the word, not just the message. And there are others who uh, take this approach, and it relates, as many relate it, to the concept of what's called aspaklaria mi'ira, aspaklaria she'ena mi'ira, the clear lens, as the Gemara says in Yuvamas and Daf Memtes, that Moshe alone has a clear lens to see with that word precision what the Nevuah is, while others, the lens is colored a little bit, um, and the, the formulation is theirs. So to sum up the approach of the Mizrahi, and he doesn't really talk about it at length, others discuss it more at length, that for other Nevi'im, they get the message, and therefore they can present the message as being from Hashem. Ko'amar Hashem, so says Hashem. While for Moshe Rabbeinu, it's the words themselves uh, which enables him to introduce with Zeh Hadavar. Now, not all Mefarshim are happy with this distinction. Not all Mefarshim are happy with the understanding that other Nevi'im do not receive the formula itself of their words. And specifically, the, the phrase, Ko'amar Hashem, what is the meaning of the word Ko? What is the import of the word Ko? For, for the Mizrahi and his school, Ko means thus. And thus means this is the, the essential idea, but not necessarily the words themselves. But from Rashi himself, and, and we should not forget that this is ultimately a discussion in explanation of Rashi's comment, from Rashi elsewhere, we can see that he does relate to the word ko as word precise, not just the general idea, and not even just faithful to the, to the general idea, but word precise. Where do we see this in Rashi? 
In Parshas Yisro, in the preamble, the introduction to uh, the giving of the Torah, Moshe is told to convey a message to the Jewish people. Hashem says to Moshe, Shmos Perikutes, Kotomar Leves Yaakov, Besaged Levnei Yisrael. As Rashi there says, one message to the women, one message to the men, <coughs> slightly different inflection or whatever it may be, but it's introduced with Kotomar, that word again. Ko, thus. What does Rashi say on the word Kotomar? Says Rashi, Belashon Hazeh. With these precise words, Vaseder Hazeh, and in this precise order. We see that for Rashi himself, the word Ko does not denote a faithfulness to the message generally. It, it denotes a presentation of the words exactly as they were received. That's Rashi's on record. That's what Ko means, according to him. And others, the Nitziv in his commentary to the Sifrei, also demonstrates from the Halacha that the word Ko means word precise. With regards to a mitzvah, that we have the schus here in Eretz Yisrael of performing every day, Birchas Kohanim, Duchenim. What is the source in the Torah for Birchas Kohanim? Hashem says to Moshe, tell, tell Aaron and his sons, Thus shall you bless B'nai Yisrael. And what is the bracha? We know exactly what the formula is. There is no deviation from that formula. No one will ever say, Who means say something like this. Give, give them a bracha which approximates this idea, even faithfully. Not so. It has to be word, precise, we know how medactic the koanim are with the, the words of, of duchening. So ko means word precise. But if ko means word precise and zehadavar means word precise, we're back to our original question, what is the difference between koamar Hashem and zehadavar? Remember, they're both exactly the words that the Navi received. How does one reflect the uniqueness of Moshe? Says the Nitziv, Again, in his commentary to the Sifrei, Emeka Sifrei, and the Malbim likewise, in the beginning of Sefer Yirmiyah, the difference between them is, relates to another unique aspect of Moshe's Nevoah. Namely, as the Rambam sets them out in Hilchus Yosodi HaTorah, that all other Nevi'im, when they receive Nevoah, they're not fully conscious. They're not fully awake. They're either asleep or in a trance, or in a vision, or something. Bachalom adaberbo, says the Pasuk. Hashem speaks to them as, as in a dream. <coughs> Moshe alone is the only Navi who is capable of receiving Nevoah when he's fully awake, as if you were conversing with someone else. As the Pasuk says, Kedaber ish el as a person speaks to his friend, that's how that's how. Uh, Moshe speaks to Hashem, and, and Hashem speaks to Moshe. Uh, and as we've uh, discussed in the past, what this derives from, awake versus asleep, what difference does it make? Because it's the spiritual faculties of the Navi that receive the Navua. And when a person is awake, the spiritual faculties are more enmeshed in their physical existence and unable, incapable 
of being able to receive the spiritual medium of Navua. That's why the Navi needs to be asleep, because when a person goes to sleep, or the equivalent thereof, the spiritual faculties loosen somewhat from their physical existence. That is why the Gemara says that sleep is a 60th of death, because there's something of a similar loosening. It's not total, and it's not uh, final, but it's, it's somewhat. And that's reflected in the blessing that we make every morning when we thank Hashem for our, our souls back. We say, Hashem returns souls to, to dead bodies. I mean, that seems to be, that's quite a, a, an extreme way of referring. I mean, some people are deep sleepers, but uh, even so, lifgarim may sim. But it's exactly so. There is an element of that because the, the neshama, the soul has loosened. And because it's loosened, it bonds somewhat with the physical body. It's finally available to receive nevuah from Hashem. And that is why a Navi can only receive prophecy when the Navi is asleep. The exception to this is Moshe. Moshe, it's a fascinating way to, to um, formulate the uniqueness of Moshe, is that his spiritual faculties are as potent when he is awake as they are when others are when they're asleep, and more so. His spiritual faculties are not impeded or inhibited or in any way lessened or diminished by the, the, the connection that they have with his physical body, he's able to receive Nevoah fully even when he's awake. The upshot of all of this, say the Mepharshim, Nitziv and others, this brings us back to the two terms, Koamar Hashem and Zehadavar. Koamar Hashem means this is exactly what Hashem said to me. But when the Navi communicates this to the people, Hashem isn't talking to him then. There are two stages. T1 is when he receives the Nevoah. When he receives the Nevoah, he's not awake. He's not capable of communicating to anyone. He can never communicate in real time because he's, he, he is out of communication with others when Hashem is communicating with him. So it could be exact, but it's not simultaneous. So Koamar Hashem means this is exactly what Hashem said to me then. And now the Navi is saying it to you. The exception to that is Moshe, who says Zehadavar. As we know from so many instances, the word Zeh has the connotation of being in the presence of something. Don't we say that on Seder night? Ba'avur Zeh. We point to the Matzah and the Maror. Ba'avur Zeh lo amarti el b'she'ashish Matzah umar munachem lefanecha. Whenever we, we use the word Zeh, you're in the presence of something. If Moshe says Zeh hadavar, what that means is he is currently in the presence of Hashem's word because he's receiving it as he's communicating it because he can do both of those while he's awake. That, according to the Nitziv, is the defining factor between Koamar Hashem and Zadavar. Both of them are precise. The question is, are they simultaneous? Koamar Hashem says, I heard it before, I'm saying it now. Zadavar means this is exactly what I am hearing as I'm transmitting it as well. So these are important discussions as we can appreciate with regards to how these two expressions reflect different levels of nevuah. But the question that we need to turn our attention to now, 
which in a sense is, is, has been waiting for us this whole time, is that if Moshe is unique, and that's reflected in his introduction of, unique introduction of Zehadavar, then why does he ever introduce with Kavamar Hashem? The point is, Moshe is not like other Nevi'im. So if he's not like other Nevi'im, why does he ever talk like other Nevi'im? It should be a clear distinction. Others say Kavamar Hashem, and Moshe always says Zehadavar. But Rashi begins by saying, he doesn't always say Zehadavar. Sometimes Moshe will say Kavamar Hashem, and the question is, why does Moshe ever say Ko'amar Hashem, which is a relatively lower level of Nevuah, beneath his actual stature? And here we find two very interesting approaches. <coughs> According to some, the default always is, for reasons that we've explained, will be Zehadavar. If you, ever, if you want to know why Moshe ever uses the expression of Ko'amar Hashem, look at the situation where he's talking. Look at the setting. You will see that there is something there which is impeding or holding him back or lessening the ability of Moshe to access the full connection. If that sounds abstract, let's immediately put names to faces uh, and, and discuss the, the two situations where Moshe uses Kalmar Hashem. The first is quoted by Rashi. Kalmar Hashem, That Moshe is uh, prophesying to Paro and uh, talking about Makas Bechoros. Where is Moshe? Say the Mepharshim, he's in Paro's palace. He's in the heart of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is referred to, and it's, it's, uh, it's tag. In Tanakh is Ervas Ha'aret. It's the impurity of the world. It's the worst place in the world in terms of spirituality. And therefore, even if Moshe as a person is capable of functioning on the unique level of Zehadavar, but even Moshe will not be able to, exp- to find that and express it in the impure, the, the, the quintessentially impure locale of Mitzrayim. And therefore Mitzrayim downgrades Moshe's reception to, to Ko'amar Hashem. That's a very interesting way of looking, at, and, in, and indeed it's true. All of the Nevuas in Mitzrayim are all introduced with Ko'amar Hashem for that reason. But there is another place where Moshe uses Ko'amar Hashem, and it's not in Mitzrayim. There's one other place in the Torah. Where is that? In Parshas Kisisa, in Shmos Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Kafzayin. Moshe has, has uh, returned to the people. He sees that they've made the Egel, and he issues his famous rallying call. In Pasuk, Eperiklamid Beis Pasuk, Kafvav, Milashem Eli, who is Hashem? Let him come for me, let him come to me. And Levi comes to him. And what do we find in Pasuk Kaf Zayin? Shmos, Perik, Lamed Beis, Pasuk Kaf Zayin. Vayomar lahem, ko amar Hashem elokei Yisrael. There again we have. Ko amar Hashem, so says Hashem elokei Yisrael. Simu yishchabal yirecho. Take your swords and dispense justice to those who were directly involved in the Egel. That is the second instance of ko amar Hashem. And once again, we, we are asking, it's Moshe Rabbeinu. You're not in Egypt. You have a unique level. 
it should be Zehadavar. We know Moshe's signature. But there, say the Mefarshim, there was another impediment. And that is the famous Russia. Rashi even brings it when Hashem tell, alerts Moshe that the people have made the Egel. He says, Lech raid. Go and descend. Kishiches Amcha, your people have acted destructively. Lech raid. Now, one only needs to ponder the two words, Lech raid, for a moment to realize that one of them is redundant. If you are on top of a mountain, you cannot go without descending. And by the same token, you cannot descend without going. Because as you go, you descend. And as you descend, you go. Which means that either it could have said leich, or it could have said reit. But it says both. And what does this teach us? Says the Gemara in Brachas and Daf Lamed Beis. Rashi cites it. It doesn't just, Hashem isn't just telling Moshe to go, reid migdulosacha. Go down from your position of greatness, of your distinction. You enjoy that position for the benefit of the Jewish people. But now that they have fallen, so you also fall with them. And at that time, Moshe suffered a fall because he is the leader of the Jewish people and he falls with them. The point of this idea is that this impacts not only Moshe's status vis-a-vis the people, but every aspect of, of Moshe, including his prophetic capabilities. And therefore, because he was in the zone, <clears throat> which is called Lech Reid, he he'd, he'd fallen from his unique position, that expressed itself even in the way that he received Nevoah on that occasion of Lech Reid, Moshe is incapable of introducing or receiving or introducing a prophecy with Zehadavar. So if we can summarize this first approach, and again, the question is, if Moshe is unique in Zehadavar, why does he ever introduce with Kawamar Hashem? The answer is there were mitigating circumstances. There were impediments, either location, which was in Mitzrayim, even Moshe has to go down to Kawamar Hashem, or situational as a result of the, the episode of the Egel, Moshe goes down to Koamar Hashem. <clears throat> What's fascinating is the Mizrahi himself raises the question, why would Moshe prophesy with Koamar Hashem? And his answer is, is quite striking. And some agree with him, others point to Midrashim that support him or that would disagree with him. But the Mizrahi asks a simple question. We say that Moshe is unique among prophets. When did he attain that uniqueness? From the very beginning? From his very first prophetic experience? Well, uh, I don't know if we would know what to say. We'd probably say we, whatever, whatever the rabbi says. But the Mizrahi says that Moshe actually began like other Nevi'im as he was initiated, or in his initial stages of Nevoah, he began like Arthur Nevi'im. At a certain point, he took off. And he ascended to a unique place where only Moshe can be. And that's when he starts with Zehadavar. And from that point on, there's no going back. But the early prophecies, at that time, Moshe is yet like other Nevi'im. And therefore, if you, if you hear Moshe presenting Nevoah in 
um, Mitzrayim, where he's be receiving his first prophecies. It's, it's a historic time. Because it's the last time you'll hear Moshe talking like other Nevi'im. It's the last time you'll see him being like other Nevi'im. Because for, at a certain point, he's going to take off into Zehadavar. And that is how the Mizrahi answers um, the example of Kovamar Hashem in Mitzrayim. There's just one problem. Mizrahi has raised a question and seems to have answered half of it. How so? Because, as we've mentioned, there were two situations when Moshe introduces with Kalamar Hashem. The first is in Mitzrayim, but then the second is at the time of the Egel. And the Egel is after Moshe has already started to introduce his prophecy with Zehadavar. The first time we find Moshe introducing with Zehadavar is in Parshas Beshalach. He tells the Jewish people about the man, and he says, Zehadavar, Shetziva Hashem. So now we have a problem. According to the Mizrahi, that the whole issue is time-stamped. So when he starts in Mitzrayim, he starts with Kamar Hashem. And then he moves, as the Jewish people enter the Midbar, he moves into Zehadavar. But the Mizrahi said there's no going back to Kamar Hashem. But we see him going back to Kamar Hashem. How can it be explained? That is the lingering question of the Mepharshim on the Mizrahi. We see how everyone is tracking all of these events very, very carefully. And what is the answer? So I believe the answer, um, fortuitously enough, is in Rashi. How so? Because Rashi makes a very interesting comment in Parshas Kisisa on those words, Ko'amar Hashem. Again, the background is Moshe's descended the mountain, Levi assembles around him, Milashem Eli, Levi comes, and then Vayomalahem, Ko'amar Hashem, so says Hashem, you, everyone guard, the, guard their sword and dispense justice. And commenting on the words, Ko'amar Hashem, Rashi has a most surprising thing to say. Says Rashi, where did he say? You say, so said Hashem. Says Rashi, when? Where? I'd like to know. When did he say that? And the answer, says Rashi, is in Parshas Mishpatim, whoever offers to Avodah needs to be killed. So to summarize Rashi's comment, Moshe says, so said Hashem. Rashi asks, when? And answers, two parshas ago, or three, in parshas mishpatim. That's when. But the whole question and answer is, is, is completely remarkable. Because whenever a prophet introduces with Koamar Hashem, no one ever goes up to them and says, well, when did he say that? I mean, they went presumably recently, or just now, or sometime. Yirmiyahu says, Kamar Hashem, Matzachem Bamidbar. There was no one in the audience who says, Well, when did he say that? He said it to Yirmiyahu sometime earlier on. So why we never look for a source. The source is, 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 is being presented to you right now. But on this occasion, when Moshe says, Kamar Hashem, everyone wants to know, Really? Hashem said that? When did he say that? I don't remember that. Ah, oh, it's in Parshas Mishpat. Ah, oh, okay, that's when he said it. Why are we looking for the source? 
But I think the point is that Rashi is responding to this very question. With every other prophecy, Komar Hashem introduces the prophecy. And there's no point in asking, when did he say it? He said it now or recently. But Koamar Hashem at this stage with Moshe can't be introducing a prophecy because Moshe's already ascended to the level of Zehadavar. He's already in his unique level of prophecy. Which means if you hear the words Koamar Hashem, they can't mean what they normally mean from another Navi. You know what they mean here? They literally mean Hashem said this. But not, not as a prophecy. But if it's not as a prophecy, it's got to be recorded somewhere. And that's why Rashi says, well, where did he say it? We're looking for the source, and then we find it in Parshas Mishpatim. So that is the, the second approach, again, to summarize the Mizrahi. It's a, pro, it's a progression. It's an ascension. It begins with Koamar Hashem, because Moshe begins like other Nevi'im. He then ascends to Zehadavar, and he never goes back. At that point, he comes into his own. And if you, if you find ever Koamar Hashem past that point, it needs individual treatment. Do not even relate to it as a nevuah, rather as a psakalacha, and you're entitled to ask for the source. <clears throat> so these are some of the highlights of the, of the very major discussion that takes place at the beginning of the parsha. As you can see, we only need to see the word, say the word zehadavar, and everyone's already off. Uh, that's even before we get to any of the details of nadarim, uh, which of course we'll need to leave for another time. I'd like to mention a very interesting halachic issue that comes up in the Parsha because there is a mitzvah that we find in Parsha's Matos, and that is Tevilas Kalim, Tovelin Kalim. If you buy, if a Jew buys the Kalim from, from a non Jew, so you have to Tovel them. And that comes from our Parsha. And let us see how that happens in Perik Lamad Aleph, Pasuk Kaf Beis. Uh, as we know, in the war with Midian, <clears throat> they waged war and they brought back spoils. And some of those spoils were vessels that could be used for eating. And what happens there? So the Pasuk states, This is Perik Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Kaf Beis. Aches HaZahav, Ves HaKesef, Senachoshes, Es HaBarzel, Es HaBedil, Es HaOfares, which is basically five types of metals, gold, silver, copper, uh, iron, six in fact, uh, tin and lead. Okay, all of those metals. Then says the Pasuk, Whatever is normally used in conjunction with fire, so you've got to pass it through fire again. That's what we call libun. If it's used with fire, you've got to pass it through fire to kasher it. And then the Pasuk says, Ach, however, it also needs to be put into a mikvah. That's how Rashi uh, presents that explanation. It's from the Gemara in the end of Maseches of Odazar. And <clears throat> that's Tvilas Kalim. And to emphasize, the mitzvah of Tvilas Kalim has nothing to do with kashras. It has nothing to do with cleansing or expunging any non-kosher food. Even if these utensils had never been used for food, it's about taking it from the domain of a non-Jew into the domain of a Jew, just as if a person himself goes from being non-Jewish to Jewish. That happens uh, through the mikvah. So too, 
uh, utensils that are used for food, also uh, as they pass into Kedushas Yisrael, the sanctity of, of uh, uh, Jewish ownership, they also need to be toiveled. Just two elements, of course, there's many, many details in halachas. Everyone knows there's a lot to talk about with Tvilas Kedem, but just two points of, of interest uh, with regards to the mitzvah. The first is the timing of the mitzvah. For what's interesting is, as much as we say that one should always perform a mitzvah at the earliest possible opportunity, those who are active, they try and do mitzvahs early. If the opportunity comes for a mitzvah, don't pass it up. But we never find that if a person has purchased uh, utensils, meal, food utensils, from non-Jewish ownership, that they have to toggle them immediately, even if they're not interested in using them for a while. What if there was a, 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 a sale and they bought things for Pesach? And it's nowhere near Pesach. It's, uh, it's Sukkot. They're not going to take them out for six months. They don't want to take them out for six months. So they have utensils in their house which require Tevila for six months, and it's completely acceptable. No one says that you have the, you have the opportunity to do the mitzvah straight away. Don't delay. You can delay, but why? And the way Usher Weiss explains this is very interesting. And that is that there are certain mitzvahs that you're obligated in straight away. A man wakes up in the morning, he's obligated in tefillin straight away. Nothing needs to happen. But some mitzvahs need a trigger. Some mitzvahs need a cause to bring about the obligation. Uh, a, probably a good example, maybe a little bit extreme, the mitzvah of mezuzah. You're, you're obligated in the mitzvah of mezuzah when you buy a house. So the ownership of a house is, obligates you in that mitzvah. If you don't own a house, you have no such mitzvah. And no one will say that you're obligated to buy a house in order to fulfill the mitzvah of mezuzah. That's going a little bit too far. I can't speak on behalf of real estate companies, but I've never heard that before. So we see that there are certain mitzvahs that there is a siba mechayevet. There is a cause that needs to trigger the obligation of the mitzvah. When it comes to tefillas kelim, there's also a cause that triggers the obligation. What is that cause? That you wish to use it for food. That's your trigger. That's your purchase of the house. Now you're obligated. <clears throat> which means that if it's Sukkot time and you bought it for Pesach and you're not interested in using it yet, we, don't, we do not yet have the cause that, that obligates you in the mitzvah. And that is why there is no requirement to tovel it before you wish to use it, because the wish to use it is what triggers the obligation, what brings about the obligation. But that itself now raises a couple of interesting questions. If you're not obligated to tovel these kalim, before you want to use them. Can you tovel them before you want to use them? If we go back to our sukkah scenario, you bought things for Pesach, you don't wish to use them for six months, but there's a mikveh handy. Maybe it's even in the store. There are some stores, they have actually a kalim mikveh there. It's very convenient. So on the way out, just before you put it in the bag, tovel it in the kli. But you don't want to use it yet. So you have no mitzvah yet. So maybe you shouldn't tovel it before you wish to use it. And perhaps uh, another application of this idea is sometimes <clears throat> you may wish to give a person a gift of something that needs tevila, but there's, there's grounds to suspect 
that that person will not total uh, these things. If you give them a, fr a fruit platter and it's glass and so on and so forth, and it's unlikely. And of course, there's nothing that will make a gift all the more endearing than attaching a label saying, please toivel before use. So what do you do? So you might consider the idea, well, maybe you can toivel it for them. In other words, toivel it before you, and then dry it and clean it and then present it so that it's been toveled. But here it's even more removed from the actual obligation because you, you're not actually using it for food. You're presenting it as a gift. In both of these situations, namely, even if you don't intend to use it for a while, and moreover, even if you're giving it to someone but you suspect that they won't tovel it, as far as I know, the halacha is you can tovel them beforehand, uh, but it's very interesting to consider in light of the way the mitzvah works what the trigger for the obligation actually is. That's the first point, timing of the mitzvah. And the second relates to the materials of the mitzvah. Which types of materials require tevila? So the Gemara actually discusses this and gives us examples of materials that do and that don't and explains why. It all begins, and certainly worthwhile within the context of uh, a parsha shir, which is what we're doing, to note that all of the six materials mentioned in the verse are all metals. Gold, silver, tin, copper, etc. And that is why, even if we opine, even if we understand that it is a Torah obligation to tovel utensils, that seems to be the Shulchanor's opinion, but it's only true with regards to metals. No other material requires toveling on a Torah level. But some do on a Drabana level. Which ones? Glass says the Gemara. Glass needs tevila on a Durabonan level. But why? Glass is not metal. Why would the Rabbanon require you to tovel glass? And the Gemara says very simply, because glass is not metal, but it has some one property in common with metal. If it breaks, it can be recycled. It can be melted down and reconstituted. And that gives it enough of an affinity with metal that the Rabbanon said to protect the mitzvah of toveling metal, tovel anything that is similar to metal. In that way, it can be melted down and reconstituted, namely glass. For this reason, says the Gemara, earthenware, or as others add, uh, wooden utensils, if they break, there's no reconstituting. They're not at all like metal on any level. And that's why they don't require tevila at all. Earthenware does not require tevila because it has nothing in common with metal. What's very interesting is, <clears throat> having seen these three categories, metal, glass, and earthenware, there are then two additional materials that need to be uh, considered. The first is, um, what about things like mugs? Glazed earthenware. So why are they a question? because they actually comprise two components, earthenware and the material, the glass-like material that, that coats them. So now the, the, the critical question is, how do we judge them? Do we judge them by what the body of the utensil is, is made up of, which is earthenware, and makes it exempt? Or do we judge them by what the food actually comes up to contact with, which is the, the coating, which is glass or glass-like? And that's why 
mugs and such like, which are, are, are glazed earthenware, the custom is to tovel them, but without a bracha, because <clears throat> there, is a, there is room to say that they don't need tevila because the, the body of the utensil is earthenware that doesn't need tevila. The second question is plastic. Now, we're not talking about plastic, which is disposable plastics, which, which I don't know if there's anyone who tovels them. I mean, the fact that they're disposable means that they're, they're really not such a candidates for tevila anyway. But let's say something like Tupperware or a salad bowl that's hard plastic and, and would be reused. So what's so interesting about plastic is that actually, uh, on paper, if you'll pardon the expression, it has a lot in common with metal. It's exactly like glass. Because in the same way that the Gemara says, glass is not metal, but it can be reconstituted, and therefore the Rabbanon said it should need tevila, well, plastic is the same. It can be reconstituted. Perhaps then it's honorary glass. And just like the Rabbanon said to tovel glass, they would say to tovel plastic. And that is a question that was, is discussed by the, by the poskim. <clears throat> Interestingly, Rabbi Vadi Yosef points to a precedent because this question was discussed way before plastic was, uh, became in vogue or was perhaps even invented. But the precedent is already there. Rabbi v. Hoffman, who's one of the great poskim of Germany in the 1800s, he was asked an almost identical question, not about plastic, but about ivory. Because ivory was already, and I'm not, uh, I don't know how they came into con- to, to possession of it, uh, not commenting on that. But uh, like glass, it could, can be melted down and reconstituted. And therefore, the, the forerunner of plastic was already being discussed. It's not on the original list because it didn't, wasn't in vogue uh, in the times of the Gemara. But it does answer to the defining characteristics of glass. And Rodovitz v. Hoffman's uh, response to that question was, all that we have is that which the Gemara said. The Gemara added glass. And even though it added glass for a reason, and even though that reason also pertains to ivory, nonetheless, the mitzvah of metal is protected by the rabbinic mitzvah of glass. That's all you have. It's all you need. Additional materials, which we will then start to use that have similar properties, do not likewise become chayev in tevila. And Rebbe therefore says, similarly with plastic, and I think the widespread minak is not to total plastic. Some are machmir, and, and, and if they're machmir, what they're saying is that if, if we, we do follow the cause in a pure sense, and if there's new materials that have the same properties as metal, can be reconstituted, we'll add them to the list. Some people are machmir, but I think the main custom is to be, is to be mekel, and that is... Um, some of the, of the highlights with regards to Tevilas Kalim as derived. I will mention just in passing, there is what I th- I'm more or less convinced is a myth. As we mentioned, <clears throat> that vessels that you'll only use once and then dispose of, disposable plasticware, etc., probably don't need Tevila. But there is a notion that some people have that even something that does need Tevila, but you can use it once before you tovel it. As far as I know, that has absolutely no basis in halacha. I'm not sure where it came from. I don't know if it's an old wives' tale. Perhaps it's a young wives' tale. But uh, either way, as far as I know, if, any, if anyone uh, comes across a, a source for that, I have not yet found one. Uh, if something needs tevila, it needs tevila from, from the first time. <clears throat> so it's a, a good opportunity when we can to 
uh, take a look at halachic matters and again see how, how they derive from the psukim and with that we'll move on to Periklamid Bays, <coughs> which is the whole episode of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruuvein, those two two tribes, which became two and a half tribes, who wished to settle, who sought to settle on the east side of the Yagin. <coughs> That's Perik Lamed base. And there's a couple of questions which the Abarbanel asks, and this is one of those instances where he really picks apart the details of this uh, of this parsha and, and raises some questions that otherwise might not occur to us. Firstly, says Abarbanel, you'll note, and we'll be focusing now on Perik Lamed days, that when Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruuvein present their request, and who do they present it to? To Moshe. Well, in Posuk Beis, Vayavo Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruuvein, Vayomru El Moshe, Ve'elazar HaKohen, Ve'elnesie HaEida Leimor. So they present their case to Moshe, Elazar, and the princes. Says Abarbanel, by my reckoning, there's someone missing from this meeting. And that's Yehoshua. Yehoshua is already known will be the leader of the Jewish people after Moshe. He is someone that one would have imagined would be here. And what's interesting is, at the end of the Parsha in Pasuk Kafches, when they seal the terms... Yeshua's there. Pasuk Kafches reads, "Vayetzav lahem Moshe es Elazar Cohen ves Yeshua benun ves Roshi avos hamatos." Moshe charges Elazar, Yeshua, and the princes. So that's very interesting. Why? How come Yeshua is missing initially, and then he appears later on? Secondly, and this is a classic question of Abarbanel, to pay attention to every word. Pasuk Bey says, as we just read, they came, and they said to Moshe, well, what did they say? Uh, they said, Pasuk Gimel, and they start going through all the territories, and they, they, they start to present their case. How does Pasuk Hay begin? Vayomru. And they said. Says Abarbanel, I'm not aware that they'd stop talking. Pasuk Beis has already said Vayomru. Until further notice, these are their words. So why does it need to repeat the word Vayomru? It's an interesting sign If they're already talking, then no one else is talking as far as we know. And just one Vayomru should see it through. And says Abarbanel, not only does Posuk Hay repeat the word Vayomru, look at what's in between Posuk Dalad and Posuk Hay. In your Chumash, you will see a Samach. And that Samach represents a Parsha Setuma. Parsha Setuma means when we talk about Parshas, the way a Sefer Torah is written, we're referring to paragraphs. Some paragraphs, the, the new paragraph starts at the end of the line, there's a space in the middle. That's called a stuma, sotem, closes in the space. Others is called a psucha because the line is open and the new paragraph starts on the next line. Either way, psucha and stuma are both new paragraphs. New paragraph sounds like a new episode. 
But this is not a new episode. They barely cleared their throats. All they've said in Pasuk Gimel and Dalad is there's lots of territories. Hashem has conquered them. They're all available. We'd like to stay there. So how is there a paragraph break between their preamble and their actual request? I wouldn't have imagined there was any space between them. It's all one request. One is just an introduction to the other. That's an interesting shiner. In Pasuk Ted Zion, we find that there's already Moshe has responded to them somewhat. He's, he's uh, berated them because it seems like they're not interested in, in joining with everybody else in the, the wars of conquest. Pasuk Ted Zion, they drew near to him and they said, What is the connotation of Vayikshu Elav? These are basic Parshanut questions. Every other Vayigash that we've had is always in the beginning of the encounter. Or whatever it will be. They've been talking to him for 10 minutes already. And then all of a sudden, they drew near to him. Where were they until now? Afar? I mean, they've been, they've been, they're all together. So what are we to make of this drawing near halfway through the proceedings? And finally, without getting into details we find that the Torah gives a lot of psukim. There's, there's, there's over 30 psukim devoted to these negotiations because the Torah keeps on repeating them. And they make their offer, and Moshe makes a counter-offer, and then they accept it, and Moshe announces it, and then they accept it. And what's, what's behind all of that? So we've had Rahmanus on ourselves and contented ourselves with five of the Abarbanel's many questions. <coughs> But let us see what he says. And, and his approach to this Parsha, I think it's fair to say in advance, there's a couple of things that he's going to say only the Abarbanel could say. Very, very thought-provoking. And <clears throat> Abarbanel is of the opinion that there was Another reason why at least Reuven initially did not wish to go into the land of Israel. Why would Reuven not wish to go to the land of Israel? Says Abarbanel, because if you know Reuven's history and you know what Reuven could have had and then you know what Reuven lost, you may begin to understand why he doesn't really want to enter the land and see everyone else take all the things that otherwise would have been his. What does that mean? Before Reuven's fall, as Yaakov chastises him in the, the brachas there, he should have had priesthood, should have had kingship, he was the Bechor, and so on and so forth. He lost it all. Yeser Se'es, Yeser Az, and Pachas Kamaim, he lost it all. And therefore, says Abar Benel, okay, Reuven had a lot of cattle, but, you know, we can overcome you know, there could be pasture on the other side. It could be the grass is at least just as green on the other side. What's compelling moving to stay on the east side? He doesn't want to go in and see Yehuda take the Malchus and Levi take the, 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 the Kahuna and, uh, and, and Yosef take the, the divided into two Shvatim. Wow. So, so if we've understood Reuven, now the question is, well, who collaborates with him? Who else is with him? God. 
Menashe will not enter the, the negotiations until right in the end. <clears throat> but in the, mid, in the meanwhile, it's Reuven and God. What's God got to do with anything? Says Abarbanel, nothing, really. Meaning God doesn't have the same, the, the tribe of God doesn't have the same concerns of, as Reuven. But they're together with Reuven. In what sense? Because in the camp of Reuven, Degel Machane Reuven, you have Reuven, Shimon, and God. And therefore Reuven, who is the, let's call him, the Rosh Machane, right, he is the, the head of that camp. So he is influencing and persuading God to join him in staying on the east side. And God accedes. There's just one question. There's three in that camp. Reuven, God, and Shimon. How come Reuven is not capable of convincing Shimon to stay with him, but he can God? Says their Barbanel, an unbelievable thing. Some of the Shvatim come from the, from the Imahos, Rochel and Leah. Some of them come from the Shvachos, from the handmaidens, Bilha and Zilpa. Now we know that from the outset, there was a kind of a disparity. There was a, 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 a distinction between them. And those who were from Rachel and Leah knew it. And those who were from uh, Bilhah and Zilpah knew it. And that was a... And Yosef, in fact, he complained about that to his father. They, they did not treat them respectfully, uh, the, the sons of the Shvachos. Says Abarbanel, that distinction did n- never fully went away, or not by this stage. It has not yet disappeared to the extent that someone like Reuven... Who's, the, who's, who's descended from Leah, will be able to have influence and exert influence over one of the Bnei Ashvachos, like God. God is from uh, Zilpah. And therefore they're able to say, I'd like to stay. Are you with me? And God said, yes, we're with you. Bnei Ashvachos follow, follow the Bnei Leah. But that's why Shimon doesn't. Because Shimon's also Bnei Leah. In a sense, he's, he's an equal peer, at least in self-image. To Reuven. So Reuven may have his reasons. There's no reason for that to affect Shimon at all. It's an unbelievable perspective. As we might have thought that was left centuries ago. That was left behind. It's not fully shaken off. God will follow Reuven. Shimon? Not necessarily. And that's how these two tribes find themselves together. And moreover, says the Barbanel. And again, one has to say these things delicately. But it's mutter to say what the Mepharshim said. That's why Reuven approaches Moshe and not Yehoshua. Because in the same way that Reuven would like to receive his, his allotment, because he doesn't want to go into the land, well, maybe he feels that Moshe will be more amenable to his cause, more sympathetic to his cause, because Moshe is also not going into the land. And maybe it would be appealing for Moshe to somehow provide something on this side where Moshe himself is staying. That's why he doesn't want to ask Yeshua, because Yeshua is going into to Eretz Yisrael proper, to the west side of the Yardin, and he would have no, no reason at all. This is the thinking of Reuven. Very interesting thoughts from the, as, as perceived by the Abarbanel. There's just one thing, and that is, at the end of the day, they are asking to secede to a certain degree, from the rest of the people. It's not a simple matter. And in fact, it's so unsimple that it's, they don't even necessarily even wish to be the ones to say it. 
to ask it, that is to say. Sometimes if, you, if you're asking something and you feel very uncomfortable to ask it, maybe there's another way. Maybe instead of you making the request, what if you put your situation to the one in charge and then this will be his decision? So that takes the pressure off you. You never actually suggested it. You can officially never even have considered it. And then when, and then when he comes with the, with the decision, you can say, oh, I, I didn't think about it, but you know, if that's the way you think it should be. And that's why B'nai Gad and B'nai Reuven, they're uncomfortable making this request of Moshe. So you know what they do? They decide not to make the request. They just put their position to Moshe. And what do they say? Psukim Beis and Gimel. Ataros, Vedivon, etc. and so forth. Sorry, Gimel and Dalet. There's all these places. There's a lot of territory. We have a lot of cattle. There's a lot of open, available uh, space here. And we just thought we'd mention that. And, and nothing. And then their hope is that Moshe will say, well, listen, if you, if there's so much available, and you've got cattle, so could it be? Maybe you should stay here, which is exactly what they're waiting to hear. And then they'll say, oh, well, we didn't think about that. But, you know, if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, if you think we should stay here, we will. So they leave it lingering. And that's why they're in their ideal scenario, they say nothing more than verses three and four. But then something interesting happens. You know what Moshe says in response to their declaration? Nothing. He just looks at them. That's why there's an end of a parsha after, after verse 4. Because really what you're looking at is probably the longest and most awkward silence in the entire Chumash. Where they're waiting for Moshe to talk and Moshe's not doing it. And the reason why Moshe's not doing it is because so much hinges on, on why they want to stay, on exactly what they want, on what terms and with what in mind. And therefore Moshe's not giving them, right? Moshe's stonewalling them to the extent that they have no choice because someone's got to say something. It's been four minutes already and they have no choice but to pick up and make the request. And that's why a new parsha begins with a new Vayomer, They've got to clear their throats again. Moshe is not going to do the work for them. He's not going to raise the idea for them. They've got to raise it. And this they do. And once they do, Moshe hears it and he begins to berate them in terms of uh, everyone will go to war, you won't go to war. And that's why Pasuk Ted Zion says, by Yigshu, they then approach Moshe because they approach him halfway through. It's almost like approaching the bench, a private word where they offer to go first. As if to say that perhaps you misunderstood us. We, we, we don't wish to publicize this, but you know, you've publicly berated us for not going to war, but we're actually we're prepared to go to war. Whether they were originally prepared to go to war, we don't know. But that's why Moshe then goes over the terms with them, but that's why he goes over the terms again. Because after their private conversation, when it's all sorted out, it then needs to be made public. And at this point, he brings in Yehoshua. Yehoshua is the one person they were looking to avoid initially. But Moshe says there is no avoiding Yehoshua. He's the one in charge. And therefore, it all has to be ratified by Yehoshua again. So there's many, many details in these verses. Again, there's over 30 psukim that the Torah gives. But at least to raise these questions, these, these, these details, we could, as always we say, we could read the Parsha so many times. 
And yet, there's a Vayomer, and another Vayomer, and a Vayigshu, and Yeshua is not there, and he is there. And, and all of this gives us the atmosphere of, of, those, uh, of those negotiations, uh, and that is the, in synopsis, the approach of the Abarbanel to the Parsha of Bnei Gad, Upanei Ru'uvein. We'll leave it over there for this evening, having done a good, uh, a good evening's work. Uh, have a wonderful week ahead, and see you, Mitzvah next week. All the best. Thank you.